This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today I'm joined by Rich Cohen of Elevate Packaging. Rich, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. So I actually, first, I think, heard about Rich, it was because he's connected to somebody I'm connected to on LinkedIn, one of those second degree connections, but talking about compostable packaging. And I'm like, oh, wait, this sounds really, really interesting. And as I learned a little bit more about it and about him, I was like, oh, this is someone I want to talk to. But Rich, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about your business, about what it's about, and we'll go from there. I have a, an unconventional path and story, and I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. Uh, my background actually is in software development, and I spent most of my career in technology strategy and strategy at Granger back in the late 80s and 90s. In 1999, I decided to take a sabbatical, and part of that was personal endeavor to study Mexican literature and Spanish, but I circumnavigated the globe also during that time. And when I did that, I came across some plants that were invasive, and these communities were using them to make paper. And the idea at that time, you know, I was just writing down different, different business plans as I was traveling, and this idea of using a non-tree paper for packaging came to me, and therein launched my business in 2000 to be the world's first fully focused sustainable packaging company. And so when we started out with those papers, we were making packaging, boxes. And then soon after that, I developed an adhesive label. It was the first compostable adhesive label that was around 2007. And from there, that business started to blossom eventually. And we got into flexible packaging too, which is films and bags and things like that. So today, we offer a wide range of packaging solutions, primarily centered around adhesive labels and bags that are all compostable. That's all we do is only compostable. But we've expanded our view, which is a little bit unconventional and possibly disruptive for the space, in that we understand that most of our customers aren't really interested in buying packaging, but rather they're trying to be as sustainable as possible. And packaging is a necessary evil in their business. And it, it just helps them to deliver a product. It helps them keep their product fresh. But we know that it, at the end of the life of the packaging, they'd rather it be gone and not have any impact. So with that in mind, we've created actually an end-to-end -end solution that's aligned with our mission as a company, which is not to sell a lot of packaging, but rather to eliminate plastic waste and re-enrich the planet. So the initial first decade and a half or so of our business was really focusing on creating very sophisticated, world-class solutions that could mimic and copy all the benefits and more of what plastic was doing, which we've done with the labels and the bags. And we thought that that was our job. But when we finished and started scaling and have a lot of success, we found that the second half of our mission, which is not just end the plastic waste, but to re-enrich the planet, that part wasn't happening. So we've created a focus in our company to not only create packaging that solves that problem with compostable solutions, but also help with the end of life by ensuring that everything that we produce is taken back and composted if our, if our customers can't compost it themselves. So I think that's fundamentally what makes us different is we don't see ourselves as a packaging company, but rather a sustainability company and trying to help our customers and brand owners have a small footprint. 
So the the packaging is really just a vehicle through which you're able to support and, and work towards that goal, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, sometimes I, I, I try to explain it in the sense of if you're familiar with software as a solution, SaaS, sure. um, this is like packaging as a solution. You don't necessarily need to own the software. You don't really want to own the software. You just want it to do what you have to do for as long as you need it to, to be done. Mm -hmm. And packaging is the same thing. No one really wants packaging. They just want it to do the job for as long as they need it to be done. And when it's done, it just goes away. So that's kind of the way we think about packaging. So either then if they have the means to dispose of it and have it composted by the, on their end, fine. Otherwise, then it's like, well, back to you so you can make sure of that. So either way, it becomes a thing where fundamentally this packaging, instead of becoming, again, additional waste, living the landfill, whatever, is something that, as you said, really can actually serve in enriching the planet, which is really, really cool. Yeah. And the, the way we do it, it's not all us. We work through partnership with the Compost Stewardship Institute, and their role is to certify packaging as compostable within their network of composters, which is a very innovative network of composters. And then they also manage the reverse logistics of collecting the packaging back from the end users in the way that Nescafe pods are collected. So that way the users can send back their spent packaging and it serves as a resource to the composter because it's actually a carbon input to their process. So when you started this in 2000, to go, to go back to that, it's not like it was a totally unheard of thing, but I don't know that it was as much a topic that was an awareness of people at the time or some people thought about quite as much, at least as I think they are today. What made you decide like, okay, I'm going to go pick up this torch and go run with it? Well, it depends how you look at it. That could be a really an ignorant uh, insight that I had, or it could be a very uh, beautiful romantic insight that I had. Okay, I've always been an environmentalist at heart. I love nature, whether it be camping, hiking, sports outside. I absolutely love nature. I love nature in and of itself. And while I was spending that time traveling, I had all the intention to go back to the corporate world when I returned. In fact, I was taking only a sabbatical. It wasn't like I left the, the position. But during that time, I got to reflect a bit about what I want to do with my life and the, the resources I have. And it just so happened that this opportunity came. There were multiple business opportunities I was contemplating while I was traveling, some in technology even. But I, I came back to thinking like, this is something that the world really needs. And someone needs to think outside of the box to solve it. And if there's anything that, that I can do well, it's about innovation, strategy, and problem solving. And so I decided to pour myself into that. And it was well, well before it's time. And, and when I say before it's time, I mean like at least 10 years before it's time. It wasn't until, I don't know what year it was, maybe about 2004, where Al Gore published the, the film documentary, Inconvenient Truth. Right. That was the first thing, as I recall, that raised some awareness for the general public. And then the next thing, which is interesting, you don't hear much about it anymore, but the next thing on a commercial level that raised some awareness was Walmart's sustainability scorecard. So I don't remember what year that was starting to publish, but it was about the same time, about 2004, 2005, I'm thinking, and people started that dialogue. Now, when I started it, I quickly got punched in the face by the the commercial engine here, and I realized the thing that I thought was the was something that everyone else should care about was truly my own passion and religion. And so, in my early years, I didn't even talk about sustainability. I focused on quality and value and differentiation. 
and we promoted what we were offering, which at the time were paper-based boxes with tree-free papers and then eventually labels too, compostable labels, we would just talk about all the really cool aspects of them because they were made out of hemp paper or mulberry paper and things like that. So it wasn't until probably close to about 2010, about 10 years in, where I felt like people were open and ready to contemplate, listen, and actually really value what we were, we were doing at the time. So the, the driving force for you about, hey, how can I do a business that's really environmentally conscious and aware you recognize that just because you love it, just because that's a compelling thing to you, doesn't make it a good marketing approach if it's not aligned with its time. And so how, how long did it take you to figure that out and and make an adjustment to be like, all right, well, we can't, we might be environmentally conscious, but we can't lean on that as, as a kind of our differentiator because no one else apparently cares yet. It was when I couldn't feed myself probably. And when I had to move out of my, I, I, I actually, I had my own, property, but I was renting it. When I traveled around the world, I rented it out. When I came back, I decided to start the business. I wanted to kind of keep things lean. So I rented a studio apartment and that probably started becoming really real when I had to move out of the studio apartment and moved into the back of my warehouse. Oh, wow. And I, I always, I tell people publicly about that because it was a real slap in the face and it was really tough times. And I had to stay there for a little over a year. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe I was a little bit too proud to ask for help. And I was a little embarrassed because I went into a space that everyone thought like, why would you do that? There's no market for it. But it was and has been a mission-based business for me. You know, it's not like I'm looking for a particular exit. You know, I'm really, really committed to this. So Really along the way, I had multiple times when I had realizations like, is this the right thing? Am I in the wrong place? And I was so deep in the woods, but passionate, so like blind to what I thought was really necessary and obvious, but yet the world, no one in the world would align with that. And so I would ask my closest friends and partners and that, am I crazy? Am I going the right way? Should I stick with this? I'm so deep into this. I can't see straight right now. And, you know, I got a lot of encouragement, which is, which is what kept me going. Yeah. That was one of the things coming up for me. Cause I'm thinking, as I'm hearing this, I'm like, okay, so you're literally having to move into your warehouse. You're clearly there. You're not finding traction here. You come from a background of, uh, with software and technology. And, and that's at a time where there, there's no lack of things you could have done there. So it's like, you know, I mean, one grateful that you continued to, to you know, to fight the good fight and adjust. Cause I think you're doing important work, but at the same time, I'm like, man, a lot of people would have just been like uh, packed it in and gone back to software. So it really, I think maybe illustrates just how strong you feel about this, mm -hmm. that you were willing to keep battling despite the challenges you were seeing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. In fact, it's been 24 years that I've been doing this. And whenever I, and, it, and it's not fake, when I talk to people about this, I, I can absolutely like get very passionate and excited about what I'm doing as if it was the first day, like I'm a newlywed in this business every day. You know, there were, I will say though, during that time, I was fortunate to have the ability to find other avenues. And there were times where this, the business was dormant because I was working. I worked during that time for three software companies, three different software companies, one of them being a sustainability data metrics company that did scope three emission management. I also taught a few semesters. I taught international business at a joint program between Bradley and University of Illinois, Chicago. 
and I taught three semesters of Java computer programming at Loyola. So <laughs> I was able to find ways to uh, keep things going. But yeah, it was, I didn't live on the business for a good 10 years. So it was one of those things of, I'm going to keep pushing this, but also at the same time, I realize there's, there's some practical realities here and I'm going to figure out a way to, to keep both of these things going. And I'll, I'm going to take this, this moment to say, for people who are interested in this topic, besides listening here, I really want to encourage you to connect with or follow Rich on LinkedIn. And here's why I would say that, because his posts are really thorough and really informative. Like I've learned a lot from following him. It's really clear how passionate he is about it, but still done in a way that's very level. It's not like they're not antagonistic, they're not, but he engages in debate and discussion. And so besides being informative, I think there's probably a model we could all use right now about engaging in mature discourse and debate about sensitive topics. So just a shout out, like Rich is well worth a follow up. This is a topic you're interested in on LinkedIn. Thanks for that. I appreciate it because I realize that when you come into a, a space that's well entrenched and established and mature and you're countering the current model, it's not easy to have that discourse in a very well-mannered way sometimes. It, I, I do my best to keep keep my composure there. But there are, you might see some of the posts, some people are quite angry with what I have to say, but I try to focus only on rational facts and data. And I try to keep it focused there so that they, because I believe those facts and that data stands on its own. But yeah, thanks for, for that. I, I spent a lot of time working at it actually to make sure it comes across that way. Well, yeah, then I, then I would say, I, I think you're succeeding. Tell me about, I, I'm, you know, you talked about the, the compostable labels were like your first, your, your first second product, your first secondary product. What was it like that led you to go, okay, we're going to start working on other things. And how did the development process of that go? And like, what's, what's that like for you as developing and evolving products? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The reason why is I, and then you make me reflect and I realized that the, the initial business, the existing business today, and back then when I was creating the labels, so much of it is guided by passion. And, and just when I say passion, not irrational passion, but a passion to make the world a better place and not a commercial or capitalistic passion. And I'm a big believer. I tell my kids this as well. You know, do what you love, do what you believe in, put your heart into it and good things will come out of it. And if you're, you're, you pursue things with good intent, all you're going to get there, all good things. You're gonna, don't give up, give your best. And so when it came to the label, um, part of it was as good inventions come by accident and, uh, and by circumstance. And the other was part intention. So I had started the business primarily sourcing these papers, the mulberry paper and the water hyacinth paper and the and a hemp-based paper from the Philippines and Thailand. And I was working with, as part of my early model was, I really wanted to also empower disadvantaged communities. So these were communities that really needed the work and the money. And I thought I was being a great Robin Hood by helping them out, but they got to a point maybe five years into the business, we're like, geez, this is too much work for us. You know, we're working all the time. <laughs> we're used to a very comfortable life, very simple life. And suddenly they had all this opportunity in front of them as well as a lot of work. And the whole town was involved. I mean, at one point, the group in the Philippines, I arrived for a trip and they had a whole parade dedicated to me in their town. <laughs> and it was, it was very flattering, but they came back to me and said, listen, this is just too much work you know, we're just overwhelmed. And I thought, I want to keep helping these people. And I wanted to keep as much converting on their side. 
the idea of just getting the paper came to me. I said, well, what if I had them just make the paper? What do I do with this stuff? I didn't want to cannibalize what they're doing with the packaging. So the idea of a label came to play for two reasons. So one, first of all, the opportunity came by accident because they really were overwhelmed. The second thing was I had to figure out what I was going to do then and how I can create a new solution by enabling them to still have economic input and then creating something that the market wanted. And at that time, there were starting to be clamshells, compostable clamshells, clear clamshells for products like a salad container. And it, I realized like, well, you know, those all need to have some marking on them. Any label that goes on a compostable piece of packaging, if it's not compostable, that means it's a contaminant. So, you know, they'd put it in the, the compost bin, everything decomposes except for the piece of plastic. And, and also the adhesive is, is toxic. So it dawned on me that probably no one's really thinking about that yet. They're all focused on the cups and the straws and, you know, forks and knives. You know, I'll get ahead of the game and I'll, I'll create something that's complementary to that. And that's kind of how the idea of that came about. Now, the next step was the development of that. I learned very fast how complex something as simple as a sticky piece of paper could be. <laughs> and I, I did get some, some support in developing that product, but it, and it was quite a significant investment. And, and that helped me cut my teeth on material science, R&D, and packaging development. And again, is this a thing where, because you're seeing this like, okay, here's this idea, here's this thing I can do, but man, this is going to cost a whole lot. What drove for you the decision to make that investment when, again, it's a space where you'd be like, oh, I don't know how this is going to play out because it's not a proven, it wasn't a proven thing at that point. Yeah. So there were, it's interesting too, because when I came to the idea of doing a compostable label, again, that was driven by passion. My position, which I maintain today, is if we bring anything to the world, it has to be the best in class, most innovative, sustainable solution possible. And so at that time, there wasn't yet a compostable label, but there was a space developing. And my focus was, we got to make a compostable label. That, that was driven purely by passion. And the reason why I say that is for the next two years to three years, nobody would buy it. And we were using hemp paper. <laughs> yeah, I mm -hmm. went to the big trade shows where people that buy adhesive label products go, like the big printers and everything. And we were giving out free test rolls all over the place and nothing. There was zero traction and we couldn't sell it. They laughed at us. They were like, what do I sm smoke these, these hemp labels? <laughs> that was one of the things they'd tell us. And we had people call them combustible labels. What? Oh, the, what is combustible <laughs> labels? And I'm like, well, I hope, I hope not. Right. <laughs> but it was a really difficult time. And during that time, I almost abandoned, I didn't abandon it, but it was at that point where I had to abandon the marketing and sales efforts because I just couldn't convince anyone to get it. And I remember it must have been about 2009 to 2010, we started getting inquiries from Europe. And there were people that said, hey, I just read in some technical trade journal that you have this thing. And I was like, yeah, we do. And that's kind of how it got resuscitated. And, you know, it, it brought it to life. And then today we have a thriving business as the world's first and only compostable adhesive label stock, which we, we make the stock and then we also make the labels. How long, if you have an idea, how long did it take for you to like basically make back the R&D and development costs on these? 
Man, you know, I never even measured that. That's a great question. I was so deep in the hole, so to speak. And it's such, it was such a passion project that I, I never even looked at quantifying that. But to, to take that a step further, we built one of the first B2B e-commerce sites in the world. It was our first site, which was called Pure Labels. I validated that with our vendor of the e-commerce site. They're like, yeah, you have our oldest site ever built. That we That's still even active, believe it or not. We need to update that. But but it's functional. It works great. And that site was called purelabels.com. And it's it's still out there. And that that site never made money for a long, long time. But I also, where we make the money though, and where we made up the money is in custom printed labels, which we do quite a number of those large volumes, millions of those. And this has to go with someone that's in that innovative, disruptive space. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and you have to be comfortable with the unknown and you have to have faith. It's truly blind faith that this is what the world's going to need. And so, you know, I've always had this blind faith that people will care about climate change. People will care about sustainability. They'll care about plastics. And those were words that didn't even exist when I started the business. We started in the early 2000s, talk about something called triple bottom line, which was people, planet, profit. There was no word of sustainability per se in the way it's used today and things like that. Then we moved into eco-friendly and a lot of things like that, but a lot of different terms. But the point at the end of the day for me was I was committed to making the world a cleaner place through packaging because I was absolutely certain that people are going to care about this. It is a problem. So coming back to that, like our approach to business is always like build the things that make a lot of sense. Kind of like the, I would say like the iPhone, you know, no one ever said, you know what I really need to do is get rid of my Blackberry, which I totally love with all those buttons, throw that thing away and just give me a screen where I have a finger that swipes and does all this stuff. That's all like visionary thinking that people are going to pitch their Blackberries, which everyone was in love with. They call them crackberries, if you remember. No, totally. I, <laughs> yes, I do. I love, I still miss my Blackberry, but, <laughs> but, uh, but that's the kind of thinking where you're putting all the bets down on something you just feel like is crystal clear to you. And for us, the other part was the, the purelabels.com website. My belief was we should sell this stuff in really, really small, not profitable parcels because it's going to seed the market, build demand, let people try it out, and, and then the business will come. It was a lot of faith. So it's really clear again, one doesn't have to listen to you for more than a couple of minutes where you can hear the passion and the intensity and the faith, which is great. And I'm wondering, have there been moments where that's kind of wavered for you, where you've lost connection with that, number one? And if so, how did you get it back? Yeah, there were probably two different kinds where I've lost faith. One is where I lost faith and I didn't know what to do and I was, I was literally stuck. And that was back when I was living in the back of my warehouse in the early 2000s. I just didn't know a way out. I didn't want to go back to the corporate world. I didn't want to ask anyone for help. That was like a feeling of isolation, desperation. It was it was not a good space, not sure. at all. And I was embarrassed and I was it was really, really bad. But I was so still, like as I say, haunted by this idea that I had, I think it's right. I just, I couldn't let it go. The other is where, you know, your regular business cycles, you know, you go through growth stages and you're like, oh, geez, we're really tapped out. Everyone's like working at the end of their, you know, limits or, you know, we need to get to that next level. We need some cash and capital. 
and I'm pretty good at rolling up my sleeves and sharpening the pencil and and getting us through that growth stage, that awkward stage that we got to work through and then get us to the next level. And so, you know, that that's those are other kinds of challenges and pains. And I think that type, what sees me through is my my confidence in myself at the end of the day is that I believe that I'm a, a great problem solver. And if I can map it out, break it down, as you know, we talk about that a lot here in, in the office, like, you know, how do you swallow an elephant, you know, one piece at a time. So I think that's kind of like my mentality to all these things. If I could look at the elephant and if I can break it down into subcomponents and I know that I can do each of those individual subcomponents, that's what gets me through. I think that what you just highlighted is such an important and often forgotten strategy for dealing with big problems as it really is because big problems are basically just a big mix of little problems and if you break them down you get to a point where you get them small enough where you're like oh okay i can deal mm -hmm. with that so that make that makes a lot of sense now this confidence that you're describing here is that something that you've always had is that something that's developed over time and if so like where does that come from for you how have you built that confidence up that you very clearly have I've, I've tried to psychoanalyze myself a few times about that. <laughs> I, I think it comes from like a mentality of self-reliance that I've had at a very, very young age. You know, when I was very, very young, I, I like to go off from morning to night and build forts. You know, I got wood from construction sites, took my dad's hammer. You know, I used to build forts. You know, we go on little expeditions and figure things out, like how to cross a river or whatever it might be, <laughs> you know, things like that. And then it, in a different level, it developed as I'd say when I was young, there were things I wanted to do that I couldn't do. So when I was 14, I'd never dribble a basketball. One of my friends was on the basketball team. I played with him for a year, was just committed to being a good basketball player, be competitive with him. And by my, by the time I was 15, I was on the basketball team. So it's like, it's one of those, it's kind of like the elephant thing, you know, just got to break it down piece by piece, learn how to first figure out how to dribble, then how to dribble between your legs. Then, you, you know, you go on and on. And I think in my, my life, I've, I've had that mentality of like looking at problems always and then breaking them down. The other thing is, I think it's related to innovation. I've got a mentality that there are no rules. Everything's possible. And this, this infinite idea or an idea of, of infinite possibilities, you know, let's go to the moon. You know, no one's done it. Uh, well, well, let's figure it out, you know. <laughs> Just because someone hasn't doesn't mean that, that we can't. And I think that, God, that there's, so there's a couple of things here that really stick out to me. One, just having these experiences of going out and doing things and figuring things out and having them in the environment of childhood where it's play and it's fun and explore, which really gives you a space where it's safe to do it. It works or it doesn't or whatever, but you just learn mm -hmm. to stick with stuff and you get that, that experience there. But yeah, really that idea of not getting caught up in the self-imposed limits that are so present for many of us or that were are given to us that we end up adopting yeah. right? versus doing that. And to come back to what you were talking about with, with the iPhone, because I think that's actually a great example. Folks may or may not remember, but I sure do that when the iPhone was being introduced, one of the things that a lot of people in the tech press had to say is they're like, no one's going to want a phone without a physical keyboard. That's never going to work. That's going to be ridiculous. 
And, you know, within like two years, it was, you know, Blackberry's falling apart or given up on having, you know, having keyboards, physical keyboards are gone. And like, good luck finding a key, you know, a phone now with a, with a physical keyboard. And yeah. And I mean, Steve Jobs was definitely that kind of person who had vision, who had the passion and pursued it and really, you know, it was like, I'm going to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm. If you've got the persistence and strength and the, the willingness to deal with the bumps and bruises that inevitably go along, mm-hmm. it opens the door to some really, really powerful stuff, which is, I think, what you've seen as your business has evolved and expanded and as it's grown, because again, it's now like, how many different products do you have, if you know? I don't really don't know offhand because we have so many different sizes and, you know, there's clear and white and craft and things like that. But I think we're probably getting to close to about a thousand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We recently just released, it's exciting. We've got so many things that either people didn't think were possible or haven't been able to figure out yet. And two of the most recent innovations is one is stretch wrap, which I think is so cool. The, all that plastic that's wrapped around the pallets that's now all compostable. And from there, we're going to leap from that to a food cling ba- food cling for restaurants. And I learned that restaurants every night, they're wrapping up all the food at the end of the night and they have all this cling wrap yeah. that's just thrown away in the garbage. So I'm, I'm while we're talking about that, I'm, I'm real curious because I know that's a, a huge problem, but I'm also like curious, like, how have you been able to come up with a product that is both that will have those properties, but then is something that you can compost? I mean, that that's really cool and really important, but like, how does that get developed and how how that get figured out? Yeah. So I can't take all the credit, but when I was in software, I was, you know, what they call an application developer. So I would, I would understand a problem and I'd understand what we had to deliver. And then we would develop a program to do that. But I'm not the one that wrote C++ or like all the, I didn't write the programming languages. I didn't build all that stuff. It's like packagings like that too. I didn't build the resins. I didn't build the adhesives. I didn't build the films. But what I do have is I look at it. Those are Lego blocks to me. And I've got a whole collection of Lego blocks of chemistry that some brilliant person developed. And now I have to figure out the application. So I'll take an adhesive, a film, a resin, a fit, many, many different kinds of components, and I will figure out how they snap together. And that that I'm good at, that I'm quite good at. So if, if I have a collection of those blocks, I won't know how to make the blocks. And what we do is we assemble them all in different ways to get the features and performance that we're looking for. So I only really know two things. I know about sticky films. I know how to make sticky stuff on films like tape. We have That's another thing that's coming out soon. Tape, labels, and all that. And I know flexible films. That's it. Just two things. And I try to figure out all kinds of solutions for those. <laughs> so for you in product development, how much of it is, okay, I want, to, I want to make this thing and then going and finding the blocks you need for it versus you going, oh, this is a really cool, cool block. What might I build with it? Yeah, it's, it's both. It's everything and both. One of the things that I learned early on was that, you know, when you stand alone and you're alone, you're, you are alone. But the moment you stand alone and put up a shingle or put up some, what I, what I called for our business, you know, when I, had, when I put up our first website, it became a lightning rod. 
And all of a sudden, electricity, lightning started hitting from all kinds of corners that you wouldn't even know or expect or ever be able to find. So I think when you put yourself out there and you, the world knows what you're rep- representing and doing, you'll find a lot of supporters. You'll find, you'll find antagonists too, but you'll also find a lot of ideas. And people will come. We have our customers come to us and say, you know what, Rich? Well, this is a great example. I love this one. Years ago, someone came and said, can you make a hygiene liner? I'm like, what is that? I said, well, we make bikinis for women and they're all organic and, and, and we want to put a liner in the bikini. So, you know, when they're tried on there, they maintains the hygiene to them. And so I started thinking, I'm like, well, that's like our labels. And they're like, yeah, that's what we were thinking. So it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes little ideas will come to us because they're presented in a way that we can then creatively solve the problem. And other things, it's I'm dreaming up something and like the label, you know, itself. And I'm like, we just got to figure out how to get to the moon. Yeah. So it comes really from from multiple places, which is really cool. Now you use the term lightning rod and that's, that's one of those things that gets you attention, but of course it can be uh, probably good or, or, or bad attention. So I want to use this point to kind of shift a little bit towards the topic of compostable materials and composting versus recycling and all of that. And I guess maybe where I want to start is for folks who aren't super clear on it, like differentiate between something that's recyclable and something that's compostable and how those different things are good, bad, or otherwise, again, from your perspective in the context of trying to just really take care of the planet. I've been learning along the path as well. And I think I'm onto something that's important that people aren't yet touching on. And I I speak about it a bit on LinkedIn too. First of all, you know, taking a purely environmental view of things, compostable and recyclable, how are they different? And I'll also throw in biodegradable. First thing is biodegradable and compostable get intermingled sometimes, but they're completely different when it comes down to the practicalities of it. Everything in the world is biodegradable. Everything, and what that means is it will biodegrade over time in being exposed to the elements. What biodegradable doesn't speak to are two things, though, at least two things. One is the toxicity and the environmental sustainability of when it biodegrades, and the other is the time that it will take to biodegrade. So compostable uh, addresses that. So obviously everything compostable is biodegradable. It will biodegrade but it speaks to how fast it'll biodegrade, which needs to be in a reasonable amount of time. And it speaks to the toxicity. So when it does biodegrade, it can't harm us or the planet. And then there's also no heavy metals, like excessive heavy metals in there. So the compost standard is guided by the FTC in this country called the Green Guides. And so the Green Guides spells out what that claim compostable must be. And then from that, different organizations have interpreted the spirit of what the FTC is defining around that claim. And then they've implemented more objective, technical, scientific definitions that could be measurable and managed. And from there have come standards like ASTM D6400, which we, for toxicity and for the chemical aspects of the materials. And then also there's organizations that then take that to a further level and we'll certify your products like 
the Compost Stewardship Institute, which is who we work with, as well as CMA, which is the Compost Manufacturers Alliance, who we also work with, and they work with composters directly. And then there's an older standard that's starting to lose some ground, but it's uh, Biodegradable Products Institute, BPI. Uh, that was one of the original 1.0 standards that was developed a few decades ago. So with, as it relates to things that are recyclable, and that's, I know I've, I've seen a lot of things from you on that, especially as it relates to, to plastic, what are some of the things as it relates to that, that you see that people believe or think that are inaccurate? And then how does that relate to, you know, comparing to say compostable materials? And I know you feel those, those are better. So tell me more about why that, why that is, right? What it is about them there and the differences there that makes them better for us and for the planet. Yeah. So, and, and it goes to your previous question about what's recyclable. So recyclable is interesting. So it depends what material it is that you're recycling, of course. Some things recycle very efficiently and very effectively. Like aluminum. And when I, yes, thank you. Yeah. Like, aluminum is great. We should recycle all the aluminum. Papers a great, has a great recycling success rate. But when it comes to plastic and it's widely acknowledged, you know, there's, there have been very notable credible studies from the EPA and some other organizations. I know NPR had a really interesting expose from a few years ago, and I posted the, the full interview on, on my LinkedIn at one point a few years back. But they, these organizations have found that the actual recycle rate is, is a, a dismal failure. We're, we're, we're seeing 5% recycling on plastics. And I mean, you think about, wow, with all the investment, the billions of dollars of investment, and not just an infrastructure like sites and, and recycling centers, but also hauling and educating the public and, you know, marking and labeling all these things to be clear that's a number one, a two or three. And then, you know, getting the public to get behind the responsibility of sorting and and after all of that effort, we're finding that we get get five percent. You know that model just simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And there's some places where it's higher than five percent. You know, some places in Europe where they've way, way stronger in mandating or you know driving it. But you know that brings up the other point. I think everyone's been blinded by the environmental aspect, and that they're really striving to keep the petroleum industry propped up by allowing these things to be recycled so then they could keep making more of it and they justify plastics, which that in itself isn't a great idea either because petroleum is a highly limited resource that, that's not going to last forever. But aside from that, the part that I think most people have been blinded from is the toxicity and the human health aspect of this. There's quite a bit of research also out there showing how microplastics now are all over the planet. They're all the way from North Pole to South Pole. They're in, in, a, in a very human and personal way. They're in the breast milk that women are feeding their babies. They, they found microplastics everywhere. And so the last thing we want to do is continue to support the plastic industry from not from the sustainability side of the environment, because they probably can figure out how to do some way of preserving it and and keeping that industry afloat by recycling through a, an investment of a lot of money. I'm sure that, that that's what they're trying to do. But the the real issue is this human health thing, and and we just don't want the plastic around, whether you can recycle it or not. It's just not good. 
Now, as it relates to recyclable materials versus compostable materials, I'm especially curious in the realm of plastics, how much has been done and what's out there in the way of, I know you talked about your, your shrink wrap and some other things, but when you look at things like, say, like beverage containers or other things like that, how much mm-hmm. compostable plastic type things exist now? And does the fact that it's still, if it's, you know, yeah, how is that from an environmental standpoint, I guess, is my question. I'm looking around my desk right here. There's plastic everywhere. Right. And and I recently posted something about plastic. I forget it was. I, I reposted an article from The Atlantic, and it was about plastic, how it, it never worked and it never will. And I got a lot of interest, especially from the plastic. They took offense to it. I don't think it's about whether we have an answer but at least we can identify the problem. Plastic is bad. Just how I mentioned in the earlier question, it doesn't matter what shape, form, or, or, or use. It's bad. The response has come back, well, what about your automobile? What about this laptop on this microphone? You know, it's everywhere. And I agree that it's not like in a snap of a finger, we're going to convert this all. We, can, we can't just, it's not that easy. But there are places that are easy, like disposable packaging. We have so many solutions. And now we we also have to have the infrastructure to compost it. But we absolutely should be looking to eliminate plastic everywhere we can. The other parts that are a bit more tricky, we'll get there. So when people criticize that, like, how can you say plastic's bad? There's so many great applications, medical applications, life-saving and all that. I agree 110%. Well, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working to eliminate it wherever and whenever we can. And the the metaphor I like to use is like the transportation industry because, you know, back in 1900, when the main mode of transportation was horses and buggies, if, if you did want to solve that problem, like how do we go faster? How can we transport A to B, get to A to B faster? Likely, we would have look towards advice from the industry, the industry experts in transportation, which were the people that managed the horses and built the carriages. And they likely wouldn't have come up with the automobile. They likely would have figured out how to optimize performance from the horse or the carriage, re-engineer the carriage. So when we look towards the industry incumbents for leadership, I think we're not going to get to where we need to get to. Likely, we're going to need an outsider like a Henry Ford to come in here and say, we got the idea. It's the, it's the automobile. And what will happen is what will happen in 1910 or so when they brought out the Model T. Like, wait a minute, it's only available in black. What happens when you get 30 miles out? There's no gas station. There are no roads that are that, that a horse can go through the mud way easier than a, a car. A car gets stuck. The car scares the horses. And if you look back at that time, that's what people complained about. And the industry of the incumbent transportation industry was threatened by this. But what they can't see in 1910 is the same thing we can't see today. And that's the answer that we'd say, listen, there are going to be super highways. What? What's that? There are going to be gas stations everywhere. And guess what? It just won't be a car, a Model T in black. We'll have all kinds of colors. Plus, we're going to have trucks. We're going to have Caterpillar tractors. We're going to have a wide range of vehicles. No one can conceive that at that stage. The reason why I'm bringing this up is what tends to happen is the industry incumbents have all the power and the voice, and the little guy doesn't have much of a voice because he's just starting out. 
and it, it's they're just crawling. And just because the baby's only crawling and not yet running a full sprint, it's easy to see how it's not going to be sufficient. This is where vision becomes so important, I think, right? What you've just identified is someone needs to be able to see an alternate reality, a different reality, an evolution of reality. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, as you've identified, there is the existing plastics industry and then the petroleum industry, you know, that both have, have very much a dog in this fight as it says. And then, then there's also just aspects of, you know, government regulation, involvement and legislation. And I know there are some things that are happening on that front that you have, have some opinions about. So let's talk a little bit about that as it relates to, you know, what defines something as compostable, how that's managed and how that may or may not be evolving and what that means for this, this journey of trying to use less plastic and really have more green solutions for the things we're packaging and putting things in. I mean, that takes vision too, frankly. And that's because the material science has evolved so rapidly. Uh, the materials that are capable that we can use, that I use to make really innovative solutions are, are moving way faster than regulations, way faster than standards. And so the standards that made sense in the, the 80s, like ASTM D6400, are horribly out of date. And, and, and that's normal. That's what happens. The government's still not, they're still playing catch up by trying to eliminate plastics. And that, that's happening. Laws are constantly being put on the books and regulations around plastics and use of plastics. But also the standards have evolved. I mentioned, you know, with Standards 1.0, there is an organization that's a few decades old called BPI. And they came up with the first standard that worked at that time. But it was a lab-based standard. They did all the compostable certifications in a laboratory. And later came a CMA, and they proved that this actually doesn't work a large number of the time, a really significant number of the time. And they found that field testing, meaning you know actually testing it out in the field at a compost site, was the best way to truly tell if something can biodegrade because they're fundamentally different technologies that every composter uses. And the, the newest and latest kid in the block, which is the, the most state-of-the-art standard, is the Compost Stewardship Institute, which then takes literally single pieces of packaging and tests them in a specific compost site and then also enables the, the, the reverse logistics of the packaging to that site. So there, there have been evolutions on, on how composting is defined and how composting gets done. And, and that's a really disruptive process because when you're creating will among people and getting people educated on something that's somewhat technical and complex, you finally get everyone huddled around, you know, a notion and then it, change, it changes and evolves and develops. It's, it's like watching a child grow. Like one moment you have a baby in your hands, the next minute you have a teenager and you have to treat them very differently. Right. We're, we're at that. That's what the world looks like in, in compostability, both the materials the laws, the standards, the certifications, it's, it's changing so rapidly. The markets, the, all of it has to stay updated as it's evolving rapidly. It seems like that's something that could be maybe a little anxiety inducing for you and your business because it could really affect how you make your, your products or what they can be labeled as or all of that. How are you dealing with that element of things? Yeah, that's, yeah. so this business was created out of the purity of our mission, which is to eliminate plastic waste and re-enrich re the planet. 
I've been on record saying, I hope we go out of business. I don't like packaging. That's why I started the business. I really don't like packaging, but I wanted to create an alternative. I'll find something else to do. Trust me, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll go back to technology, but I wanted to at least be able to offer businesses that wanted to be sustainable and create best in class sustainable solutions with packaging that could support their business and be aligned with their own missions. So with that being said, you know, the way I look at it is if we could move away from toxic materials to compost materials, wherever and whenever, you know, everything from the microphone to the, a piece of packaging, let's, let's work towards that. And then if we do create something that's compostable, I think it's better off being composted instead of landfilled. And so everything that's being made of a compostable material it need, needs to be composted. But the standards and I don't understand them, frankly. They don't make a lot of sense to me. There's some folks that are proposing that the only things that could be called compostable, labeled compostable, would be related to food waste or food, like a fork, a knife, a plate, a salad container, or a bag. But if that same bag that was used, say, for a head of lettuce could equally be used for putting a T-shirt in or you know, some other item they would say that can't be labeled compostable. It's the same exact material, same exact structure. And even if even if it is accepted to be compostable by a composter, which I think should be the defining criteria. So if a composter believes that it could take it, make good compost from it, and have a thriving business to make and sell compost, I'm a strong proponent of letting them do that. So here's, I think it seems like another area where where the passion and determination is necessary because this is clearly something that's evolving and going to continue to evolve and working with and around this is probably going to be an ongoing challenge for you in your business. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, this is moving so fast. We need, we need thought leaders. And, and the fortunate thing is we have some of them. Like I said, I've mentioned some organizations that, you know, I don't want to name names, but we've got some brilliant people out there that are leading this charge and the way it's evolving is through collaboration, through vision, and through an alignment on mission. Not, in a, not focused on taking care of yourself or keeping the old standard because it's your best interest personally, but alignment on vision, which the people that are truly doing the right thing, in my opinion, care about making the world a healthier place, both by planet and human health, but also by keeping that to be their North Star more than anything else, even if their business were to not be positively affected by it, whether you're in the plastic industry or the standards industry or whatever it might be. And, and I realize that it's not easy to migrate from the horse and buggy business to automobile business. But interestingly, I'm a Chicagoan. There's a company, a taxi cab company called CCC. It's called the Chicago Carriage Company. And I believe they came out of the old horse and carriages and they figured out how to migrate to the taxi industry. So this is, I think, actually a really important point I want to, I want to underline here because history is full of, of stories really that go both ways on this. Things change, people change, the world changes. And there are a couple of different responses that we can have to that. Sometimes companies resist, they push back, they try and manage or keep the change from happening. And history doesn't suggest that goes well over time. Mm -hmm. It's not a sustainable approach. Then there are other companies who see the writing on the wall and who really 
instead of focusing on trying to hold on to what they've done or trying to focus purely on the like, you know, profits this quarter are more about where is the puck going and how do we start skating there? Even if it requires us completely turning our business inside out or upside down. And you see stories of businesses like that. And the one example you've just given, which I appreciate you sharing, I'd never heard of them is are that. And I mean, this is a thing Jim Collins talks about in his book, good to great. Very, one of the fundamental things is really being able to face the brutal facts right? As he calls it and the whole thing with the Stockdale paradox. But this is one of those, those concepts. And that's, this is a thing. And I think for anyone who's in a business, who's really trying to do something that is about making the world different and revolution, you know, really doing a revolution has to be, I think in that space, right? Where they're really willing to do what's right from the standpoint of what serves the mission, mm-hmm. what serves the purpose. And that means there may be times where you're going to do stuff that's really hard or difficult or uncomfortable stuff that's going to impact your profits. And that may even be like, I don't know how we're going to survive this. And then figuring out a way to adjust and navigate, which it sounds like is something you've, you've had to do plenty of along the way here. Yeah, definitely. I won't go into the long story because I think everyone knows the story and how it ends. But there was a little company that did that back in the late 90s. And they thought that books could be bought online. And this little company was called Amazon. Right. And there were some huge guys that were experts better than them about selling books. And there was a company called Borders and they stuck to their, their executives said, no, no, who's going to ever want to buy a book online? No one's ever going to want to do that. They want to page through a book. They want to walk into a store. And as I said, I won't tell the rest of the story because we all know how that ended. For you, as you're going forward and navigating what are, it sounds like pretty much some constantly choppy waters I'm wondering if there, if you have a current problem or challenge that you're kind of wrestling with that we might dig into and un- unpack to get a little more specific and tactical here. I have one big, big problem. We should be much bigger, much greater, much everything than we are today. And it's because of maybe it's my mentality. Because when I was a software guy and a strategy guy, I always thought, look at those people over in sales and HR. What do they do? You know, they're out on the golf course. And you know, those are my two pain points. I've never been great at building a sales organization. I've never been great at hiring people and knowing who to hire. And in my experience, the best hires I have have been amazing. They enable the business in a way that's just like blows me away. But I've really been struggling to find those people. You know, we've got a great team here, but we need more. We, we've got so many open possibilities and positions. And I've tried all different ways of recruiting and, and hiring. Everything from very, very detailed, prescriptive, technical ratings and all that, all the way to the other spectrum is my gut. And what I've come to believe now is that the, the most important aspect isn't necessarily the skill set that people have, but their mentality and their willingness to grind and problem solve and critically think. And, and those people don't always necessarily have a Harvard education. They come in all shapes and sizes. How to find that? I, I, if I, I wish I could find that magic because we got plenty of open opportunities for those kind of people here. So it sounds like you are starting to get a sense of like, these are the sorts of people 
who are a good fit, who do work out here, you know at least a fair amount about them, about who they are and who they aren't necessarily. And so then it becomes a question of like saying, like, how do I find more of these people? What are these people looking for? The way that I know I can find them is really inefficient, but I'll bring people in as interns. I'll bring in a gaggle of interns. And then we'll, I, once I see people working, it's really quick. It's usually a, a week, two weeks, three weeks. I'll like, wow, that's, that's the right person. We also sometimes outsource to contractors. And sometimes I'll have three contractors do the same exact work. And then I'll see how they perform. And like I said, it's not the most efficient method, but that's what we've been doing. The worst thing, and I hate doing this because we're a small company, but if we were to bring someone on, we're so tiny. If they just didn't fit, we just, we just can't sustain keeping them. And back to the book, Good to Great, you got to get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. And I don't know if it was in Good to Great, but somewhere it says, hire slow and fire fast. I think that's out of the book. And I think that is my number one challenge. I don't mind hiring slow. And I, I, if I have to hire fast, I will. I don't want to have to do that. I'd like to get it right on the front end where I know how to qualify these people. So that, that's my biggest challenge. I just don't know how to qualify them. So as you think about some of these people and you start to differentiate in your mind between, okay, here are people who've worked, here are people who haven't. Um, and you've got some, you know, some parts of it, but what other common characteristics do you see? People that like from with an Im immigrants or people that didn't have, they, they struggled through life. They had to figure things out on their own. I see that. I see a pattern there. And, and like I said, it's not about education. It's about people that are, they're creative in their thinking. They're pro they have a problem solving mentality. A lot of times they didn't have. So they've always learned that you have to work hard to get what you want. Those are characteristics. I see. Those are things I see. A passion for learning and being coachable. Like it's hard for me to find. I don't know how to interview for that in that first day or two or first or two interview, one or two interviews. But I know when I see it, and I see it within a few weeks. Like I said, but it's hard for me to figure that out from the beginning. It can be hard to spot because it's not. It's not obvious. Like if, if someone has a Harvard degree, like they've got the diploma. Like, you know, it's like, that's, and that's part of why I think people lean into those sorts of qualifications because they're clear, they're quantifiable. It's like, boom, here it is. But as you said, like some of these other things are more subtle and they're not necessarily obvious. And at the same time, when we start to understand these folks that, you know, we see, and we start to see, and you've identified a lot of the traits, right? These are folks who they are interested in learning. They want, mm -hmm. you know, they want to work hard. They're willing to work hard. And you start to, then I'd say you start to ask yourself, where else are people like that? What else do they do? Who else looks for or connects with people like that? And that starts to possibly identify some places where you have a greater likelihood of finding people, right? So it's like, I would say like someone, you know, you like, you want to meet people like beer, go hang out at a brew pub, right? Cause they're there. <laughs> Well, and I've, I've done that. I've not the brew pub exactly, but there's an organization called net impact. And those are all mm -hmm. people that care about sustainability, but I don't find those other traits necessarily in that population. Uh. I, they have a passion for what we do for sure. But, you know, I started to think that maybe, cause I'm trying to think, what is it that's unique about me? 
I mean, there's a few things, because I, I think uh, there's a few people in the company I'd love to photocopy. But, uh, you know, one of the things is I have this problem-solving mindset, and I see that in engineers. So I sometimes think, like, maybe I need to find, you know, a chemical engineer or an electrical engineer. But on the other hand, there was a woman I once hired. She was, I don't know what she studied. I think it was medieval literature or something like that from a very good school. And she just had a good brain. Like she was a smart woman and she knew how to solve problems. She knew how to deal with new situations. And I think there's a lot of smart people out there. I, it's still, I haven't figured it out yet, but yeah. Well, I, so I, I wonder here if this may not be a place for you where basically finding a Venn diagram is the key because you're, you're talking about these individual dimensions, like, you know, there's this or there's this or whatever. And I'm starting to think like, well, where do these things overlap two or three of them? And again, it does that point you to places, you know, that, that are there because I get it. You're going to find people who are like, yeah, they're interested in one thing, but they don't necessarily have this other characteristic or they have this characteristic, but they're not interested in the thing. And it's, you start to be like, well, where do multiple things intersect or overlap? And that starts to, it's going to do two things. One, it's going to help you find people who could be a potential fit, but also anyone who's in that overlap is going to be someone that is likely to be a good connection for you because they are going to get it in a different way. And if they aren't your people, they may know your people or may help you find your people, right? That's yeah. the thing. Cause it's like, I think that's where it becomes the key with this is how do we narrow it down enough, right? To get, to get to a pool. It's, it's kind of like, imagine um, a net for catching fish, right? If you make the net the wrong size or the wrong shape, you're going to catch too much stuff or too little stuff. And it's about getting that net dialed in. And that's where I think like Venn diagrams and other concepts like that can be powerful as you start to go, where are the overlaps here and mm. how can I use that? Thanks for that. I just jotted that note down. And I think the one th more thing I'd add to it is I have a good set of subjective criteria, like, oh, they struggled or some ideas or they have a good work ethic. What I need to do for the Venn diagram would be to find the ob objective criteria that defines that. The only problem I found is it's imperfect when I get to it. Yeah, I just haven't found that the high confidence level between those two, like someone that's struggled in life, you know, in terms of like being an immigrant or not having a lot as they grew up to having a good work ethic. And, you know, yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I've started to try to define that. So one other, one other thing you might do here, and this is, this is something that gets used in, mar in a marketing context. And I think you would do it here is, you know, in marketing, you talk about like study your best customers and find common traits and common things about them. And that often helps you think about how to structure your marketing here. I would encourage you to go look at your best employees and really break, the, break them down. Just kind of identify what are the traits and characteristics that these folks have? Who are they? What do they do? What are they interested in? What kinds of things? And then start to look for commonalities as far as not just specific things, but themes. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that will also start to point at the very least, it will help you get some ideas. I think of where to go looking that are, have a higher likelihood of working mm -hmm. for you. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I was like, I'm kind of laughing because the compliment of that is try to find the employees that didn't work out and what was common in them and like really notable schools with advanced degrees has been on that list. <laughs> that, that's, in, in, again, that's interesting. And I, I think actually your point of what about that, knowing that is actually really valuable too. 
especially when you can get figured out how those traits are contributory, right? Some of them may just be coincidence or alignment, but some of them would be like, they didn't work out because, because I think you, you raise actually a really good point in getting the, the broader perspective. Because again, the clearer you know that and the clearer you understand those people, one, it helps it make it easier for you to position how you put job listings together and where you go look for a job for employees, but also just to know where these people are as far as places for you to build connections, places for you to go speak, to go engage, and just to, you know, to be, make yourself more visible. Yeah. Sometimes as an entrepreneur, you're, you're in the forest and you feel alone, you can't see out of the trees and your global perspective is extremely helpful. So for you, as you're going forward, I'm wondering, like, do you have any things that are like in development or that you're working on product wise that you can share with us that are, that you're excited about? Yeah. It's, it's been, it's a long tail opportunity about three or two to three years ago, you know, we were celebrating our rapid growth and it immediately caused concern for me because the mission of course, is to make sure things get composted or, or, you know, the end of life is right. So I, I never wanted to build a successful packaging company. Mm-hmm. So when we started selling more of this stuff, I got upset. I said, everyone has their head in the sand in this industry. We're not trying to sell more compostable packaging company. We're trying to clean up the earth. And for that reason, we should care. We need to care about the end of life of these things, not just sell them. So I then made it my, my mission to do two things, understand why it's not happening. Why are we not getting things composted? And then understand what the powers that be and the most influential people in that space of making that happen. Because of that, I won't go into too much detail, you know, I got to this notion of this horse and buggy thing and the automobile. And I'm like, well, that's why we've got the horse and buggy people, whatever they did before, trying to figure out how to do something that's completely different. I mean, digging a hole and I mean, I don't want to, I shouldn't say this because it's, it's not to be disparaging, but, you know, hauling stuff away, putting in a hole and, and covering it up is very, very different than composting. Composting is not about hauling things. It's about carefully selecting resources that have certain characteristics like high carbon content and being compostable and securing those resources carefully and then moving them to another manufacturing process, not dumping it in a hole or, you know, it's another manufacturing process to make another output of high quality, which is compost. And that is inherently a very different process than what we've used in the past for waste management. And I would go back to say, like, that's the problem. It's not waste management. It's resource management. So we fundamentally, I think, are from that that big picture, we just fundamentally have it wrong when, when we're looking at, you know, how we're going to do this. So what's next, you're, you're asking? We are dead, you know, focused on how to close that loop. We've already, in cooperation with the Compost Stewardship Institute, run very successful pilots, very successful pilots with much, many, much tonnage and getting it composted successfully. The composters are happy as can be. It's a misnomer that they don't like packaging. If it adds value to their process, they're frankly, their businesses. So if, if they can run a better and more profitable business by composting packaging, they're all for it. And as long as the, the output is, is also high quality compost, which, you know, part of CSI's 
process is to do a micronutrient analysis test on the compost at the end. And it's, it's great compost. So there is a misnomer that one, they don't want compostable packaging and that compostable packaging has no place in compost unless it's related to food. It's absolutely patently not true. And this pilot proved that. So what's coming on the horizon is not a product per se, but this capability of enabling brands to get all the benefits from packaging that they want whether it be like shelf visibility, preservation of their product, and use the users being able to use the product over and over and reseal it and close it. And, and then at the end, not having any, environment, any environmental impact. That's what we'll be delivering and more and more so over the next year and years to come. That's really amazing. I love that. It's like you've taken your vision so far as far as being able to put it into action and into reality bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I started on this thing, I thought I had one thing to solve, which was getting a compostable piece of packaging, a label or whatever it's to the world. And soon after we did that, we realized, no, it's not that simple. You really have to have all those pieces working. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all striving for. You know, when it comes to these sustainable materials, we're right. all trying to make the world a healthier place for, for the environment and for human health. As, as people sometimes say, it's part of the thing of entrepreneurship is a journey of solving bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> problems. And, and we don't always take it on knowing that, but that it is often, often how it turns up. So Rich, for people who want to connect with you, learn more about you, about Elevate and, and your products and stuff, where, where is the best places online for them to, to connect? Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning my LinkedIn. That's absolutely the best place. There's two places to learn about two things. Well, three places to learn about three things. One, you can go to Elevate's website and learn about our products and our company. And our company is definitely down the middle of the fairway when it comes to, you know, how we speak about things and we want to educate people. We're, we're really offering an unbiased service. And all of our team is not only has deep expertise in composting and compostable materials, they also have a very fair-handed view of it because we're not trying to sell packaging. We're truly trying to make the world a better place. If you want a biased opinion, <laughs> that's you come to my LinkedIn, which is what you, what you mentioned earlier. I have very strong, innovative, aggressive opinions. When I say aggressive, I don't mean mean aggressive, but like very strong opinions that challenge the status quo. And I think it, it's a great place for food for thought, for exposing maybe things that not everyone would want to expose because of concerns about, you know, stepping on people's toes. But I am unapologetically honest. And, and that's where you'll see where I'm thinking about things and where I think the world's going. Well, and I think both as it relates to this topic, but also, again, like I said earlier, alluded to, for somebody who wants a model for how do you go about putting your passion into action from the standpoint of engaging in discourse about it, I think there's a lot they could learn from watching how you engage with people on LinkedIn. So I'm going to include links to all of that in the show notes, of course, as always. And uh, Rich, really grateful for the time and the conversation and the education. One of the things that's been such an unexpected benefit for me of doing this podcast is I have learned so much from people such as yourself. Really appreciate what you're doing. And thanks again for the time and being a guest on the show. Thanks. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And I'd do it again anytime.